Welcome to Newcastle Libraries Real. Newcastle Libraries can be accessed from wherever you live with the Newcastle Library app. Put borrowing at your fingertips. I invite you to close your eyes and imagine. Imagine that there are no buildings, no roads, no cars, just the trees, plants, animals and the very first storytellers of this land, the Awabakal and Waramai people. I acknowledge them as the traditional custodians of this beautiful land in which we live. Welcome to the Treasures from the Rare Book Room podcast. Newcastle Library's Heritage Collection contains more than 440,000 items in various formats from Merrill portraits and Snowball's plate glass negatives to the original Menzies Declaration and the Creer and Berkeley Archive of Subdivision Maps. A wide range of Newcastle's stories are presented in the Library's Heritage Collection. Join us as we explore one piece from the Library's fascinating Rare Book Room. Welcome to our Treasures from the Rare Book Room podcast. I'm Kerry Shaw, Heritage Collections Digitization Specialist at Newcastle Libraries. In this episode of Treasures from the Rare Book Room, we are discussing the wonderful world of bees. I'm joined by Danielle Lloyd Pritchard of Time to Be and Mark Page from the New South Wales Department of Primary Industries. This chat is inspired by the ABC and XYZ of bee culture an encyclopedia pertaining to scientific and practical culture of bees, and several other fascinating works on bees that form part of Newcastle Library's treasures. The number of pollinators is in decline around the world, while the need for pollination is on the rise, especially in developing countries. In some parts, this situation has become known as the pollinator crisis. Researchers have established that the main reasons for the mortality of bees include mites, disease, complications with queen bees, viral infections, mass use of products in modern farming that impact on pollinators, urbanisation, climate change and global trade in low quality honey which impacts the beekeeping economy. If bee families continue to disappear at current or even higher rates, this could lead to the breakdown of the economy and put our health and well-being at risk. A study published in the journal Lancet predicts that smaller consumption of fruit and vegetables due to climate change which also affects pollinators, will cause twice as many deaths by 2050 than hunger and malnutrition. That's really interesting, Kerry, and I love the way you've looked at the entire context of the bee crisis around the world. And I think for our purposes, it would be really good to look at what's happening in Australia and maybe talk about, in particular, the Hunter Valley and what some of our beekeepers are facing currently as we you know, navigate through a pandemic, the bees also have their own pandemics as well. Um, it's wonderful that Mark's able to be here as well. And I think, Mark, do you want to add to that conversation? It is your livelihood, by the way, be be yeah. biosecurity officer of New South Wales. Yes, thanks, Danny, <laughs> and thanks, Kerry. Yes, most important that we look after our honeybees. It's become uh, a, a lot of in pollination. We've certainly been through fire, through droughts, so the resources of bees um, has been impacted. So this impacts the beekeeper and also honey production for the beekeeping families. So most important, but we also need to look after our native pollinators as well. It's interesting in the Hunter Valley and, and particularly with the people I work with, it's not so much the honeybees that we're dealing with. When they talk about what's going on in my backyard, they're looking at what they're doing and 
what might be impacting on all pollinators as well. So yes, you're a beekeeper and you've got a passion for bees, but it extends beyond the hive and it extends beyond what you're seeing just on the insects, on the insects on your flowers. They're looking at what am I actually doing that might be harming the bees and what can I do to help them. So we're so fortunate in Australia that Generally, our bees are fairly healthy, would you say, Mark? Like, we're so lucky yes, compared we are, to Europe and America. Yes, we're very lucky. Um, and you're right, you're 100% right there that people that are getting into beekeeping, it also makes them more aware of their environment, their backyard, what else is about other insects, native bees. You know, we have lots of pollinators, not just bees, flies, wasps, your possums, your bats. It, it continues on from there. So it's not just bees but uh, looking after that environment plantings in your garden to to support bees and general wildlife is is certainly on the increase and awareness as such yeah that awareness looking at your practices making sure you don't use too many pesticides so pretty much everything you said but in particular looking at pests and pathogens that might be impacting on our bees in our beehive and in the hunter valley i know currently this time of year we're talking spring um, small hive beetle are really starting to rear their head and a lot of the beekeepers I'm visiting are just really struggling managing, helping the bees to control the small hive beetle. So I feel that's the biggest problem at the moment. Uh, what about you? What are you, what are you seeing, Mark? Yes, small hive beetles always uh, an impact. And once we come into the summer months, those warm, humid days suit the, the beetle. And um, any weak or weakened colony due to queenlessness or something like that, the beetle seems to, un, you know, have a sense of that and overwhelms the colony and then it's fatal for the colony basically the uh, the larvae wriggle through the th- the colony and through all the frames and honey and make a mess and what we call a slime out but yes they're certainly impacting um, increase in beekeeping obviously increases pests as well and those queens you mentioned the queens might be a problem in some instances certainly i've i've noticed my queens coming out of winter some of them haven't done so well in spring and it's really important that you do check your hives this time of year and if you need to requeen you have to be brave enough to do it (laughs) that's one of the hardest things when you're first starting out getting into the brood box and unfortunately sometimes you need to remove the old queen and put her to rest yes most important that our engine room of a beehive is running well so that is your queen queen viability so inspecting for disease is important but also just inspecting for the viability of the colony the queen laying capacity and all of those things there's so much stores, pollen and nectar as such yes yeah there's so much to beekeeping it's fascinating once you get in you can't help but connect to the bigger picture in your backyard and the environment around your community The oldest record of beekeeping is from 15,000 years ago. Painting of the Magdalene period found on a rock of the Curves de la Arana in Valencia, Spain. The painting shows two men climbing up long ropes, probably woven of sedge ropes, to a small natural hole in a cliff, evidently intended to represent the dwelling of a swarm of bees. One of the men is shown taking the honeycomb out of the hole and placing it in a basket. Bees are shown flying around. One of the Hunter Valley's first recorded European beekeepers, Reverend Robert Ayling, spoke at a beekeepers convention in 1892, lamenting what a great misfortune it is that there is so much reckless destruction of our forest trees. Some of the best trees are being ruthlessly destroyed. If we are to depend upon New South Wales as a great honey-producing colony, preservation of the forest trees is necessary. Yes, most important is resource availability for honeybees and keeping colonies viable they need that resource to build up 
And if we're losing that resource through through fire, through drought, perhaps land clearing and things like that, it's hard for the beekeeper to keep his bees healthy. And as we know now with pollination becoming a large factor in horticulture, strong colonies of bees, healthy colonies of bees are required for that. So yes, most important to look after our resource. Yes. Kerry, the ancient art of beekeeping, isn't it amazing? Thousands of years of history. And we're really just talking about the honeybees that produce honey in large quantities there. But we shouldn't forget there's an incredible history, tens of thousands of years of Indigenous cultures and utilising native bees. And in Australia, we've got that history with our stingless bees. And you mentioned that there was a beekeeping conference or, yeah, in the 1880s. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, I read an article recently where they've They've been digitising old news, newspapers and there was a record from 1894 of the first Musselbrook Beekeeping Association forming. And in, in this article, they mentioned not only the honeybees on display, but also a hive of really interesting native stingless bees or bush bees as they were calling them. And they had them in this glass hive as an observation hive. And it was fascinating because I'm going, that was 1894. Wow. I thought we only had beekeeping associations since, oh, just over 50 years now. But no, I'm wrong. We need to delve into Trove because it's fascinating, the history within Australia. And remember that we've only had bees here for 200 years, nearly. Yes, next year. That's the European bees. We should 200 years of the European honeybee being introduced into Australia, so 2022. Yeah. Oh, that's right. We're having another bee congress, aren't we, to commemorate yes, that 200 years. Coincide with that event. Happening in Sydney where the bees first landed. We now have an excerpt from the ABC and the XYZ of bee culture. A bee skeleton, as with other insects, is on the outside of its body, serving as a protection for the softer parts within. In the bee, the heart is aerated by having the lung portion or tracheal system extended clear through the whole structure of its body. A bee has two stomachs a honey stomach and a true stomach. Between the stomachs there is a stomach mouth that has the function of allowing some of the nectar into the true stomach and is at the same time to strain out particles of pollen that should not go below. So if you're interested in, in keeping European honeybees in your backyard, it is a, a, a registrable dealing. So you register with New South Wales DPI. It also gives you information and things like that on the keeping of bees and your obligations under the Australian Honeybee Biosecurity Code of Practice, which is what New South Wales falls under for beekeeping now. And, you know, there are... It's like any hobby. We kind of... If we're going to go fishing, we don't catch fish sitting on the lounge. So with beekeeping... You need to look at your bees, and it's, it's there's mandatory requirements, but most good beekeepers will will probably do brood inspections much more than the mandatory requirements there. So, but a very interesting hobby and a, a growth area at the moment with over thirteen and a half thousand registered beekeepers in New South Wales now. So, and then you've got your native bees, people with those. So, yes, they're fascinating insects, and you've described some of some of the anatomy of the bees there. And I would, would say to people just starting out, flowers are important, yes, but there's a lot more you need to think about before you get your hive in your backyard. You need to look at the needs of the bees, not just your own needs and wants. You also need to consider what is it about an insect that's important to them to thrive and survive. So a variety of flowers, variety of nectar sources beyond just your backyard. These hives are going to fly for up to two kilometres from the hive 
foraging for nectar and pollen. So make sure your area has enough supply and preferably, ideally, year-round supply of flowers because in our area they do forage all year round. They don't hibernate over winter. We have active bees, particularly the European honeybees, all year round. They will need water, so make sure they've got a nice fresh water supply and don't rely on your neighbour's pool to be that supply. So ensure you've got nice containers of water, nice, well, you can put in a nice pond with plants, somewhere for the bees to land and get a fresh drink of water on those really hot days. Make sure they're not positioned so that they're going to become a nuisance. You don't want them out the front of your house. You want them preferably hidden away where their flight path isn't going to annoy neighbours or pedestrians or animals in that instance. There's so much to it before you even place them in position. Which aspect are they going to be facing? How are you going to access them? How are you actually going to manage the hive? Is there enough space for you to do that? And overall, is it physically possible for you to do it? Make sure you've thought about that, your own strength and abilities. So I always say to people, go do a course, get some experience with another beekeeper, spend some time around bees before you delve in, order your hive, pay all that money for equipment, and then realise when they're in your backyard, you're stuck, you're overwhelmed. It's just not for you. And if that's the case, plant those flowers, plant your pollinator gardens, you know, become that haven for all our pollinators, not just the bees. There's so much we can do to help the bees without becoming beekeepers. But if you are going to become a beekeeper, you're going to love it. It is an addiction. And if you're lucky, there'll be a sweet sweet reward at the end. But don't count on it. Get the bees for reasons of conservation and connection back to nature and just to complete that cycle in your environment and your community. Yeah, I think um, most importantly, you do get a little bit of information before you start with bees. Amateur Beekeeping Associations New South Wales has a, a large network of, of clubs. Um, you're welcome to go along there and have a listen, talk to people, see what the requirements are of looking after bees and then make the decision rather than jumping in and realising you can't even lift the boxes once they're full of honey because that's where you'll end up if you do get that sweet experience, as Denny said. During the first half of the 19th century, the designers of hives endeavoured to produce a move frame hive. Groups in Germany, France and England devised hives, hives which were not successful and it was the Reverend Lorenzo Langstroff of Philadelphia that discovered the practical use of the bee space in 1851 which enabled him to use frames which the bees did not fasten to the hive body. Types of hives, wow. Hmm. Well you mentioned the Langstroth, which is the traditional hive used in Australia and generally around the world. There are a few options now. There has been some new technologies released. The Langstroth hive, yes, has the removable frames, makes it very practical for the beekeeper to manage bees and to extract the honey. We also have the flow hive in Australia, which a lot of people would have heard of. And again, that's another technology. It's an invention that doesn't require you to remove the frames and spin the honey out of them. You can actually tap the frames while they're still in the hive, but that doesn't remove the need to manage them. Isn't that right, Mark? Yes, 100% true. They are, a, like the flow frames are a way to take honey from a, a colony of bees. We must also remember that it's a requirement that you keep bees on a frame that is removable for inspection for disease. So that is a requirement. You can't just put them in a broccoli box and, and let them go. So yes, the requirement there is a removable frame. So your ware hives, all of those things, they may be naturally drawn comb, but they're on a frame or a bar that will um, be able to be removed and, and inspected. Actually, that's a good point. You mentioned the Ware Hive. There's an, a movement around natural beekeeping and a lot of people are going towards these Kenyan top bar hives 
um, what's another name for them? I call them barbecue hives because they're kind of flat and you lift the lid and they look like a barbecue plate with the top yes. bars of the frames like a grill. <laughs> yeah, some people call them coffin hives, but a coffin hive to me is more of the, the square one still using the standard B-frame. But it's good for people that may have a back injury because they run horizontally rather than vertically, so you're not lifting heavy boxes. So there's ways around everything, um, even for people that may be in a wheelchair or something like that, you can still keep bees. Yeah, that's true because a lot of beekeepers do move their hives around. They need to move them to f- at various times of the seasons to follow the flow, so to speak, which is when the flowers are releasing nectar. But in backyards, a lot of the time you don't need to. Our suburban areas are this incredible source. They're like a sink of honey because you've got the variety of the plants, the garden plants, as well as remnant bushland patches around the place. So think about that. Do you need to move your bees? If so, you're going to have to consider what type of hive and make sure it's not too heavy and impractical to move. Yeah, very good point there, Denny. It is, is excellent in high residential areas beekeeping because they have access to all everyone's gardens. They don't need fences. They'll fly wherever they need to go and they'll find it. Another excerpt from the ABC and XYZ of Bee Culture. How to avoid stings. First, by having gentle bees. No one likes stings. And even the veteran who affects insensibility to the wrath of his charges will find his interest and pleasure in them much increased by crossing well-established breeds with continued careful selection to fix desirable traits and result in their reproduction with a fair degree of certainty in the offspring. Smokers. When bees are especially irritable, some beekeepers throw a tablespoon of ammonia nitrate into their burning smoker to produce nitrous oxide laughing gas, which quiets the bees. Oh my goodness! I've never heard of that one being used here in Australia, but... No, ammonium nitrate, they use that in fertilisers and explosives. Don't go there. I would never advocate adding anything like that to your smoker. I don't think you'd be able to purchase it anyway at this point in time here. (laughs) Um, You'd probably have the federal police after you if you did. But yes, the the gentleness and and trait of a a queen is most important, especially in high residential beekeeping, you know, when when you've got neighbours and things like that. A nice gentle queen at the helm. Your bees follow her trait, so, you know, basically there are times we could probably work our uh, our bees in our shorts and singlet. I don't recommend it. If you do start to cop stings, you know, you need to get away, get protected, so always wear your suit, you know, whether you wear gloves or not. Bee stings are no fun for anyone. We don't get used to them as such. But as I say, keeping nice queens with it, with that good trait, and sometimes in the natural beekeeping world where they're letting their colony requeen, they do get to a point a few years down the track where... The hive is that aggressive that they just about can't go out in the backyard. So think about that one. Look, stings are an occupational hazard of beekeeping. If you're going to be a beekeeper, you're going to get stung. Whether it's working the hive, even if you're fully suited, you can still get stung through the suit. Or you're just in your garden with your cup of tea, watching your girls, as people do for hours. They're great time wasters. They can just land in your hair. Oh no, am I talking from experience? Yes, I am. They will find you. And as you're gardening and you brush against those flowers where the bees are foraging on, as soon as they feel trapped and squashed, they may sting you. So if you're reactive to stings, allergic to bee stings, I don't think you should go down that pathway. Just support them with flowers in your backyard and observe them from a safe distance. And a gentle approach, so not clanging and banging and all of those things. Nice and gentle, treat them well with respect and and they should look after you with less stings. Speaking of the joy of keeping bees and getting honey, we now have a recipe, so pencils ready. Honey joys, 90 grams of butter, 
a third of a cup of sugar, a tablespoon of honey from your hive, four cups of cornflakes, preheat the oven to 150 degrees, line 24 patty pans with paper cases, melt the butter, sugar and honey together in a saucepan until frothy, add the cornflakes, mix well, working quickly spoon onto the paper patty cases the mix and bake in a slow oven for 150 degrees for 10 minutes, leave to cool and then eat. Okay, this is probably my favourite part of beekeeping. It's the products of the hive. So when I went into beekeeping, it wasn't so much about the honey, it was all about the bees. It was all about pollination, pollinating my backyard veggie garden, and ultimately my children getting stung as they hadn't stood on a bee in their lives. And how can you grow up in Australia running around barefoot and not get stung by a bee? So yeah, bees can start out for one reason. And then if they're successful and they're happy in their position and they become a very productive hive, they're healthy, strong, they're going to produce not just honey, but other products like honey, uh, like wax. And if you're into eating pollen, you can collect some pollen from your hive. So you, you will end up with leftover bits of honey and this beautiful comb that you can turn into amazing things. So wax wraps is one of those items that a lot of people are getting into these days to replace a plastic rack. But once you're a beekeeper, you start looking for any ideas. And I think the recipes are great. You'll always be looking to cook with your honey and you'll always be looking to save every last drop of that wax, bit of wax, and turn it into candles and presents. You can't help but share your produce from the bees. That's one thing they do. They make you share because they're always sharing. And I think every good beekeeper will do that. Yes, I agree. And I think they are like a barter system that we used to do a lot of. You know, you can be swapping honey, as I do with a neighbour down the road for when he has corn or something like that. So they're a great community thing and neighbourhood thing as well. Um, I think honeycomb, you you know, comb in the honey is, is, is an area where you put that on a cheese platter and people kind of screw their nose up until they try a piece of honeycomb with some cheese and then they, wow, that really does hit the taste buds. It's become a, a real thing. It's quite boutique now, the different types of honey you can get. So I, I do exchange honey with a lot of beekeepers because they've got their hives in different areas to where mine are kept and you'll get different flavours based on the time of year and the types of flowering and the plants that are around the hives. That's, that's one of the most exciting things when you extract your honey, the first taste and trying to guess where did that honey come from? Oh, look at the colour. Oh, it's really thick or it's really runny or it's super sweet. There's a lot there. And there's now people called honey sommeliers that taste honey and try and match it with food, a bit like the wine matching with the food. They're now doing it with honey. Yeah, Mark, you mentioned cheese platters. Honey and cheese is huge. Yeah. And I think our varieties, like Australia, is placed in a great position with our straight line varieties as well. And they need to be pushed and marketed a lot more, similar to wines. Um, As Danny said, there's much varying tastes in honeys, textures, all of those things. And isn't it true, Mark, that they call it monofloral honeys? Isn't that mainly commercial beekeepers that are getting that? Because I don't think I've ever had a single floral sourced honey from my backyard in suburban areas. You, you cannot control where the bees are going, and it's always a mixed blossom honey. Yes, it's very hard. You may have a, a good flowering in, in your area, something like, say, a, a forest red gum or something like that, which will predominantly it will come in quite quickly. The bees co- collect quite a lot of it, so it will still be mixed with other things from other backyards and other flowering plants. But the commercial beekeeper will chase a straight line or a monofloral honey white box, yellow box, 
that's predominantly all that's flowering in that area, so they can pretty well call it 100% a straight line white or yellow box or iron bark. And what about our manukas? Yes, again, well, we won't go into the debate with New Zealand over the name manuka or anything like that, but yes, we have some wonderful sites for manuka and many varieties of the manuka too, more than what New Zealand has. And so that's continually being explored and opened up for the medicinal values. Even the jarrah honey from Western Australia is proven to have good medicinal benefits for you now too. Mm, so we're still discovering the benefits of the products of the hives and there's a lot of research in Australia happening now around the medicinal benefits and properties of our honeys and also in the stingless beehives as well. They're looking at those products and how effective they are at, at treating certain conditions. Yeah, watch this space. It's an exciting area. Yes, and as I say, if you're going to have uh, sugar, make honey your sugar as such. <laughs> a poem by Norman Roland Gale called Bees. You voluble, velvety, remnant fellows that play on your flying and musical cellos, all goldenly girdled, you serenade clover, each artist in bass but a bibulous rover, you passionate, powdery, pastoral bandits who gave you your roaming and rollicking mandates. Come out of my foxglove, come out of my roses, you bees with the plushy and plausible noses. Oh, where can we get more information about beekeeping in bees? There's an encyclopedia of information on the internet and you can get lost in those rabbit warrens when you start researching bees and thinking about getting into it. My advice has always been find a mentor. So find a local beekeeper close to where you live that can share their experiences, join a club, do a course, get yourself educated and experienced in the skills of beekeeping And let's not forget, there's a lot of great podcasts out there. So definitely listen to this podcast, the library podcast. I also do a podcast with another beekeeping buddy of mine, Dr. Patrice Newell, and that's called Bee Therapy. And that's really us having conversations about bees. And if you like recipes, well, tune in because we always have one. We review a lot of books and research. But Mark, you come from a government background. What's your advice? Go and do a course or something, a beginning in bees, to just see where you feel you're at at the end of that, whether you're going to get them. Your amateur beekeeping associations across New South Wales, great place. Yes, a, you know, a neighbour down the road that may keep bees or, or in your area that's happy to uh, give you a little bit of mentoring, role modelling and, and show you what's happening. Um, are often very good as we say in beekeeping you know social media can be good at times but when you ask one question of 20 beekeepers you get 21 answers all different thanks so much for listening to the treasures from the rare book room podcast to access and browse newcastle library's collections please visit our website at newcastle.nsw.gov.au slash library. To view our heritage collection, just Google Hunter Photo Bank. The online collection is constantly being added to as items are digitised and loaded, so be sure to visit often. This has been a Newcastle Library's Real Production.